So how many of us have ever found ourselves in a conversation where we're just talking along and all of a sudden things change in the conversation and you kind of have to do a double take and go, how did we get here? I don't, I don't know how the conversation ended up where it is. We're talking about what's for dinner and all of a sudden we're talking about the state of things in the Middle East and go, how do we get there? For any of you that have kids or have raised children, you know that you can go from talking about a favorite dinosaur to being asked why God allows sin in very short order and with no connective tissue in between there. Well, when I was looking at today's passage, I kind of felt that way for a moment. We have this great and encouraging exhortation in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. All pretty status quo. But then Paul seems to kind of uppercut us with this phrase. But sexual immorality. And your head spins for a second and go, but where did that come from? How does this fit together? And I spent a, a while trying to parse this out and figure out where it came from, and I feel like God was gracious in allowing me to see kind of the process here. But we're going to read from Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to read verses 1 through to 14. So again, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the son of, sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light, therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is God's Word, and this is our passage for this morning. And maybe you, like me, take a moment and scratch your head and kind of ask how we got there. Our sexual immorality, covetousness, and filthy talk out of place in what Paul is saying here. Well, last week I had said that our Father, God the Father, is about the business of training His people in holiness and has been from the very beginning. Each page of Scripture calls us to it. 
the whole Old Testament in a nutshell is God's example of holiness and our human inability to attain it. And if you think back to your own time and study and reading in the Old Testament of the Bible, think back to Israel and their pattern and how things went for them. What was one of the great downfalls of Israel? If you go back to their own stubbornness, the stubbornness of their hearts, you'd be right. And particularly, I think, of their stubborn refusal to totally follow through on God's commands, particularly regarding foreign nations and idols. How many times should Israel need to be commanded to totally remove all remnants of their old enemies and the old enemies of God from among them? Should they even have needed that commandment to tear down every idol or shrine or place of worship? But they did. They did need those commandments, and even with those commandments, they still didn't do it. Deuteronomy 7. Defeat them. Then you must devote them to complete destruction. Make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all of the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And yet, depending on the day, rather than remaining holy and set apart, God's people quite regularly allow God's enemies to continue on, they intermarry, they allow and even join in the worship of the idols. The people of Israel were chosen by God to be holy and set apart, and yet they became so watered down as to be undistinguishable from the nations around them. Now remember the audience of our letter these Ephesians Christians. They're Gentile Christians. They have been chosen by God to be holy and set apart. They have been commanded to be holy as their God is holy. And hopefully you're seeing some repetition here. God has again chosen a people from amongst the world and called them out and called them to be set apart. Part of that choosing is that they're no longer to be viewed simply as Gentiles, instead now to be counted among God's own people and part of his household. And as such, these Gentiles must no longer walk as Gentiles do, darkened in their understanding, alienated from God, callous, given up to sensuality. Throughout the New Testament, if you're reading it, you'll find dozens of these lists, specifically lists of sins that mark a person as belonging to the world. Sins that, when practiced without guilt or repentance, mark a man for damnation. Sins that demand to be put to death in our lives if we are truly pursuing God. One characteristic of these lists is that the two main focal points of our passage as far as sins are concerned, almost always appear there. 
there's almost always a mention of sexual immorality, and there's almost always a mention of either covetousness or idolatry, which our passage tells us are one and the same. And sexual immorality is usually one of the first. Galatians 5 is one of the many lists. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Our biological created gender and the sexuality that attends the difference in our genders has been attention from very, very early on in our creation. And sexual immorality has become a stumbling block for mankind ever since. In almost any great movement away from God and His commandments, sexuality has often been at the fore, drawing us away from all that we have been commanded. We have in our sin taken what is a good gift and twisted it into something unrecognizable, something totally counter to its original design. And that right there is a common thread between sexual immorality and covetousness or idolatry. And I think why that these two are mentioned together here. Two people becoming one flesh become something cheap to be shared with anyone or no one else at all. We've taken something and twisted it that God has given us. And God has given us many good things. Gifts that are meant to point us towards Him in worship, and instead, we pursue them above all else, even above God Himself, the Creator exchanged for the created. I don't think Paul here or in any of his lists throughout the New Testament is trying to give this fully-orbed list of sins that God's, God finds particularly problematic. But I do think he is tugging on a thread from what he said earlier. He lists in chapter 4, falsehood, anger, thievery, corrupting talk, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. And he lists these as things that is grieving to the Holy Spirit to be found amongst God's people. These things should not be found in amongst God's people in particular. We should not be showing that to one another in the body. But then, taking what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? We were just told in Ephesians chapter 2 that God's people are growing into a holy temple in the Lord. We're being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And I think Paul is identifying some sins that are particularly hostile to the new life and the new man that is supposed to mark 
us individually as believers. At the very beginning of chapter 4, much of the rest of the letter to the Ephesians is targeted at urging them to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they have been called. And our specific area recently deals with our conduct and the way we must act and how those actions either reflect that we are walking in that way or do the exact opposite. And that's why Paul says in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 5, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. From our time in Hebrews, I hope that we have it ingrained in our minds, this notion that if we persevere in our profession of faith, Unto the very end, then we are children of God, then we are saved. And the reverse is also true, that if we are saved, we will persevere. And Paul follows that same vein, and he totally and utterly decries the notion that a true believer, a true Christian, can live in continued willful and unrepentant sin and still call themselves a believer. One of the incredible things about the Bible is we have a book that is 2,000 plus years old, some of it much older than that. And yet, by the empowering work of the Holy Spirit, it still remains as relevant to us today as it was back when it was first written. Our world is overrun with these notions of Maybe you get your fire insurance by praying the prayer. I don't, I don't want to go to hell. I don't really know if there is a hell, but I'll just pray the prayer, and then I've got my fire insurance, and I don't have to go to hell when I die. Or maybe I'll show up to church once in a while because that looks good on my spiritual resume, and it'll kind of tip the scales in my favor when, when it comes time. Or maybe I was baptized as a baby or a teenager or even in my younger adult years. I was baptized all the way back then, so I'm in. I'm baptized, I'm in, I'm good, and from there on I can pretty well live how I want. Or maybe they just outright deny what the Bible commands, outright deny what the Bible calls sin and say, all right, I'm a Christian, I believe in all of it, I don't like those parts, so I'm going to ignore those parts and stick with what I like. And even worse than that, than individually engaging in those things, whole churches, whole denominations are teaching that kind of nonsense. That's why Paul says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. All throughout the New Testament, there's this expectation that there are going to be false teachers coming and twisting the gospel using it to their own ends. It's going to happen. That's not a if, it's a when. And we should not be surprised that we have whole churches, whole denominations springing up and saying, well, there's some good stuff in here, and we can take this stuff and use it. Maybe we can use it to our own ends and make a whole bunch of money as super preachers somewhere, or maybe we can just stick with what we like and toss out what we don't like. 
But ultimately, this is true or it isn't. There is no real in-between here. We are called to follow and believe everything that we find in the pages of Scripture. And we do not want to be deceived by the empty words of those who would lead people astray. So that leaves us in a predicament because I would say that every single one of us sitting here this morning has at some point qualified as an idolater. Every single one of us has somehow qualified as sexually immoral, particularly if you take into account the magnifying effects of the New Testament commandments. Hatred, lust, and covetousness become murder and idolatry and adultery. I honestly doubt if many of us have made it to church this morning without making an idol of something in our lives, making something in our lives more important than God. But if we are in Christ, then that is no longer defining of who we are, and we are not devoted to those things. We have become members of the household of God, saints saved by our Lord Jesus. And while we still struggle, we still do battle against sin, we do not embrace the idea that any sin is to be tolerated or even celebrated amongst God's people. Galatians 5.9 is one that has become kind of ubiquitous across believers and non-believers alike. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Basically, that's, okay, you mix a little something bad in there, it doesn't matter how much it is, it's going to infect everything that's going on in there. And that's why the Israelites were told, you need to purge every scrap, every remnant, every memory of the people that I'm driving out before you, because if you don't, they are going to become a thorn in your side and they're going to cause problems. God knew that it was going to happen, he told them to do it and they didn't. No, none of the old gods were to be left behind, but they were. And lo and behold, the Israelites were fairly short order worshiping other gods. None of the old people were to be left behind, and they were. And lo and behold, fairly shortly thereafter, the Israelites were intermarrying with them and bringing in more of the old gods, incorporating more of the old customs. Whether it was thousands of years ago, or today, James 4.4 4 holds true. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And that's why Paul warns these believers who had been actively called out of the world to be adopted amongst God's people. He warns them saying, Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. No longer are these ones darkness, or sons of disobedience, or children of wrath. If you or I are in Christ, then we are no longer darkness, or children of wrath, or sons of disobedience. We have been made light. We have been made alive in Christ. And if this is the case, then we must not live any longer as we once did, as the rest of the world still does. Instead, we must pursue what 
Paul calls the fruit of light. John says in 1 John 1, 1, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. Again, we are walking in the light and yet we still need to be cleansed from sin. We are not perfect. We still struggle with sin. We still do battle against sin. But if we are walking in the light, then we will be cleansed from our sin as well. And that does not mean partnering with the darkness. It does not mean accepting the darkness. It means pursuing what is right and casting off every bit of the darkness that still clings to us like tar and exposing the darkness for what it is. Expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. And that right there is what our world can't suffer. That's why our world hates true belief. The kind of belief that tolerates and partners with and takes part in and accepts and condones and even celebrates the things that the world does is the kind of belief that our world is totally fine with. Yeah, you believe your thing over there, and you can believe your thing as long as you don't have a problem with my thing, and you don't have anything negative to say about my thing, and as long as when my thing comes up that you kind of say, okay, yeah, you believe your thing too. That's just as good as what I believe. But if we follow the commands of Scripture and expose darkness for what it is, our world will not tolerate that. And we are promised that our world will not tolerate that. And we still are supposed to do it anyways. I mean, the obvious application that we've danced around here right now is that we're in the middle of Pride Month. An entire month, and I don't want this to take over our entire pastor because it fits here, but that's not the only thing going on here. But for the whole month of June, our entire country the entire world celebrates what the Bible calls sexual immorality. Whole denominations of churches have partnered with this. The United Church of Canada, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of Canada, and many others. Individual churches across, across the nation have gotten on board with this. LGBT clergy, solemnization of LGBT marriages, throwing pride events in churches. I mean, the application here is obvious. Don't partner with what the Bible calls sin, and then certain denominations all of a sudden find themselves doing exactly that. That is directly opposed to the command that we should take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. Our love as Christians, as believers, extends to all of God's creation and especially to our fellow man. And that includes all of the LGBTQ2S plus community. We love them as people created in the image of God. But the most loving thing that we can do as believers is to speak the truth that is found in the Word of God, even if that truth is hard. 
I don't have to think too hard about whether it is loving to tell my son not to run into the middle of the road. Because even if he wants to play in the middle of the road, I know that that's not a safe place for him to be, and it is my job to love him by speaking the truth. You should not be there. And we can be absolutely loving to our fellow bearers of God's image who are in those communities, but part of that is going to be speaking the truth and not dancing around it, not hiding it, and not partnering with their sin. We speak the truth in love. We're not going to stand and picket them and say, God hates you because, but we are going to speak the truth in love. We are going to expose sin for what it is. And our goal in exposing sin, whether it be sexual sin or any other kind of sin, like I said, Pride Month just gives a pretty clear example here, but any sin, when we expose it, our goal is not punitive in that moment. We're not going to judge a person, particularly a person who is outside of the church, who has made no commitment or no claim on faith. We're not going to judge them and bring about the punishment that they deserve. That's not our job. Our job is not to punish the world. We can't do that because we are, or at least we were, no better than anyone else in the world. We are all sinners desperately in need of the saving grace of our Savior. But also, God has told us to leave that to Him. Only God can judge fairly and justly and without error or partiality. When we expose sin, when we call a person to account for their sin, we do so in a manner that is meant to be restorative. Listen to the the transition that Paul makes here. Take no parts in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. When anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light, therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. We are called to expose sin. We must expose our own sin through confession and repentance. We call one another to account for hidden individual sin that we become aware of. And we do that through the process outlined in Matthew 18, going one-on-one and then bringing another alongside and following the biblical instruction for that. And we also expose corporate sin when we see it. But all of that we do with a mindset to expose that person to the light. I am not here to beat a person into the ground for their own sin. I am here to say, God has called us to something far better, something far more, and that needs to go for you to participate in that, to receive that. And we call the world sin for what it is, sin. All the while recognizing that in their sin, if they are in the world and part of the world and not claiming to follow Christ, then they're just simply following the course of this world. They're doing what the world does. We shouldn't be surprised when the world wants to sin because that is what the world does. Straight from Paul's letter here, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That is what the world is doing. 
and we shouldn't expect any less of them, but we should reveal to them that there is something else. For us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called, we must exchange our sinful and worldly lifestyle for a life dedicated to righteousness, to the fruit of light, and we can only do so for the light of Christ to shine upon us. In Christ was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John 1, 4. Our light, our life is found in Christ. His death, burial, resurrection for all who would come to him releases them from the slavery to sin, and it releases them from the penalty that was due their sin because he has absorbed that penalty. He has experienced that penalty in himself upon the cross. And if we believe that, then our lifestyle must declare it. Even our associations, even our attitudes towards all sin must declare that. If we are in Christ, then we have become temples of the Most High God, dwelling places for the Holy Spirit. And corporately, as churches, sin must be put out of the church. We must keep pure the temple of God by speaking to one another in a loving manner, not slandering, not lying, not thieving, all that stuff that we talked about last week. But we are not just the temple of God corporately. We are also a temple of God, a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit personally. And if the Holy Spirit dwells in us, then we must not bring sins of sexual immorality and idolatry into God's house in our own life. I know that my wife keeps a clean house. Thanks to her, even with a pile of children and a dog and a husband to look after, our house never feels dirty. It is always well taken care of. And holding on to such sin in our hearts would be like me coming home from being out driving to St. Paul maybe and finding a rotting carcass of roadkill along the way and just dragging it right in the middle of the kitchen and just setting it on the table. If I drag that kind of filth, that rotting carcass, and put it on the table and Sherry comes in and flicks on the kitchen light and sees that there, it should be absolutely horrifying to her. I'd be like, I take care of a clean house and there's this filth sitting in the middle of my table. That is how out of place sin should be in our own hearts. We should be able to look into our own hearts and go, that does not belong in here. That does not go here. And in the gospel promise, by the work of the Holy Spirit's sanctification in our lives, sin can become that out of place in our lives. So much so that even what the world would call small sins feel out of place in our lives. And it might not be that way for you right now. It might feel like you're still trying to clean up the mess from your last bout with sin. I know it often feels that way for me. But Christ is faithful to continually and in an ongoing way reveal sin in our lives. And he is also faithful to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We confess our sin. We turn our hearts over to him determined to fight against it and to reconcile with those whom we may have wronged. 
to work to clean up the mess that we have made and to not do it again. But we cannot do that alone. We do that with the help of Christ, and we live in the light of the forgiveness that we find in the gospel. Wrapping up this morning, I want us to live in this world, this world that celebrates sin, but as we do so, as we interact with and we encourage one another, let us be as the Israelites were meant to be, as these Gentile Ephesian Christians are being called to be, set apart and holy unto the Lord. Let us become a people that both corporately and individually, sin becomes more and more and more out of place, more and more and more just repulsive to us. For we must walk as children of light. We must try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord and take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, instead exposing them. We are to live in the light of Christ, in the life of Christ. And may each of us walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am confident that I can speak on behalf of every single one of us here. Whether we have confessed faith in you or not, whether we have been Christians for five minutes or 50 years, I know that on behalf of all of us, I can confess that we have sinned and fallen short of your glory even today. And Lord, we ask that by the work of your Holy Spirit, you may cleanse us from our sin. We ask your forgiveness. We ask that you would give us hearts that would seek to reconcile with you and to those that we have wronged. And Lord, we look forward to the day when this battle ends. We look forward to the day when you either call us home or your son returns and sin will be no more. And we don't have to wake up every morning and put on the armor of God prepared to do battle against the sin in our lives. But Lord, that is not where we are right now. So we ask that you would help us to do battle. Help us to fight against our sin. And may our sin become so out of place in our lives corporately and in our lives individually that we cannot fathom letting it alone. That every sin we see in our lives would feel like something that needs to get dealt with and dealt with now. And Lord, may we be bold to expose sin for what it is. And I know our hearts are immediately turned outwards, but may we expose our own sin for what it is. Confessing it before you. May we not be found to be partnering 
with the same sin that necessitated your son's death on the cross. May we not be consorting with the very thing that had him with nails driven through his hands and his feet. May we love Christ so much that we cannot imagine betraying him by returning to the sin from which he has redeemed us. And may we encourage one another every day, as long as it is called today, that we might persevere in the faith. Lord, as we go out and go to have our picnic, we pray that as we do so, that we would encourage one another and exhort one another, and the conversations that we have wouldn't just revolve around fishing or football or hockey or any of the other things that so interest us. We pray that we would have great conversations about those things. But we pray that we would also have great conversations about how one another are doing, about the state of our own lives and our own souls, and that we would find one another encouraged in the faith, driven and exhorted to follow you more wholeheartedly. Lord, go with us from this place. Take us in safety and in your, in your will, in your timing, may you bring us back to worship together again. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.